Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Elisa Haggerty. Elisa is a conscious leadership coach and consultant who works with individuals and teams committed to personal and professional growth. With over 18 years of coaching experience and with a background in learning and development, Elisa builds experiences and trainings that are dynamic, digestible, and research-backed. With an emphasis on building self-awareness and upskilling through experiential learning, Elisa empowers her clients to identify and break repeated drama patterns in their work and in life. Drama is inefficient and drains mental health resources, and the world needs leaders who are present, curious, and agile in the face of change. Work is a medium for transformation and growth, and she has a strong commitment to play. Each episode, I will also be raising awareness for a charity or organization of my guest's choice. And this week, it will be for the Alzheimer's Association. And uh, I will be donating, and I hope that you will join as well. There's a link in the show notes to click on and donate. And in this conversation, we explore Elisa's journey into conscious leadership. She actually has a background in health coaching and got a certification from the same place I did from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. So she's always been looking at holistic health and the whole person and understanding root cause, what influences the way that we are behaving and how we show up in the world. And now she does that from a leadership lens. And there's all sorts of reasons that we show up the way that we do with regard to leadership. But in this conversation, we explore feeling our feelings and how emotions are an inherent part of being a human, but we typically don't show up allowing ourselves to feel our feelings. So Elisa really eloquently speaks to how this results in drama and how this interferes with productivity and energy, and it leaks into all different areas of our life. And she riffs on how we can bring more play and less kind of boredom and straight-lacedness into the workplace and into our life. We don't need to show up with such a buttoned-up and lifeless energy when we are doing work. And I really love the way that she speaks to this. So with all of that said, let's settle in. Take a deep breath. And enjoy what Elisa has for us today. All right, Elisa, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you, Mike. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you. And uh, before I ask my, my typical first question, I'm actually curious. You've got uh, a nice green juice in front of you. What's in the green juice? Uh, this is actually just a pure matcha. Um, matcha just blended up with some water. Um, it's a ceremonial grade matcha. It's like my little caffeine source for the day. So, mm. don't yeah. You don't drink coffee? 
You know, I love coffee. I love the taste of it. Um, the caffeine is really intense for me. So I have to go like, you know, decaf or half calf. Um, and when I'm living really wild and on the edge, I'll have a full calf, full caffeinated coffee. And then I just have to make sure I work out and eat a lot of protein that day, or else I just become very jittery. So, yeah. um, but I love coffee, ice cream. I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of coffee. I just, my nervous system is not necessarily the biggest fan of coffee. Yes. Totally understand. Well, yeah. the, the real first question I wanted to ask you, Elisa, I love understanding people's come from uh, what you were like as a child and an interesting portal into that is what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Boy, let's see, dinner table life. So I'm the youngest of seven kids and, and I'm also a twin. So my twin sister and I, would, my twin sister's name is Catherine. And she lives here in Brooklyn. She's an artist. And we would sit at the end of the dinner table next to my mom across from each other. And we would kind of like make, like we had our own dialogue. We would say things to each other. We would kind of like, you know, signal at like, what food do we want and plan our escape from the dinner table, mainly just because we had our own world because we had many louder, older siblings to our right who were just like dominating conversation. And we really couldn't get an edge, a word in edgewise. Um, so there was that dynamic. And then, you know, my dad, who at the time probably was in pharmaceuticals, but he had a background in English literature. He was a teacher for many years, too. I often remember one of the condiments was a dictionary. He would bring out the dictionary to debate the meaning of a word. And maybe my sister, who was older, and I had an older sister who was really academic and into literature as well. They would debate the meanings of words and and so I remember that being really unique moment in the dinner table world, but it was generally very loud. And my sister and I were, my twin sister and I were trying to escape and have our own conversations. So, <laughs> well, hello to the truck driver. That's uh, I know, I know. in New York city. I'm going to mute myself if, uh, if that happens again, and then I'll let you talk, but it's all good. It's become, it's become part of my podcasting journey. I, I live in New York city as well, as you know, and uh, mm -hmm. sometimes you, you can't help but have the wonderful sounds enter the podcast conversation. So this is real life, you know, it's real life. One of the curiosities I have is, uh, so you're one of seven kids. Did your parents come from big families? Like, was it their intention to have a, a massive family like that? I don't think there was any intention behind it. I think they were Irish Catholic. They didn't have a lot of money and they were just like living life. And, you know, so they just had kids. <laughs> but my mom and dad both actually were one of seven siblings. So they did come from, uh, they each came from like a bigger family, either Irish Catholic or, you know, German, um, British sort of background Catholic. So yeah, it was just, just part of like life in the 70s and 80s. You just had kids. <laughs> there, and it wasn't much planning. I don't know. Like these days we micromanage and plan all of our days, our weeks. We have goals, we have metrics. We, you know, I think back then it was just like live your life and you know, if you if you plan things out good for you, but I don't think much was planned. Yeah, it's it's nice to think about it that way. I I know that your dad has been a, a big influence on you, and you said that he was uh, among other things, it sounds like he was uh, an English teacher. Is that correct? Yeah, the first career he ever had, he was a high school English teacher and also a basketball coach. So he was just really involved the community, involved with sports. He taught literature. He did that for, I think, eight or nine years. And then he had to get a job that paid more. I'll tell you a story. The story is that it was 1984. I had just been born. So I was like a couple days old or months old. My dad was making $14,000 a year as a teacher. So not much. And he had seven kids now to provide for. 
And my mom was like, hey, Jim, you, you, you've got to go out and help us make more money. You know, you can't stay an English teacher forever. My dad was like, but I love it. It's my passion. It's, you know, I'm so passionate about what I do. And so my mom's like, that doesn't matter. We have seven kids now to feed. And so, um, I mean, she wasn't so cold like that, but she was like, help us make more money. Anyway, so my dad was friends with a man in the community who was also on the school board. And the guy on the school board happened to own a company, a tech company of sorts. And um, my dad and him became friends. And my dad said to him one day, like, hey, I need to make more money. Is there a way like I can work for your company and make more than what I'm making as a teacher to support my family? And this guy said, you know, I don't think you should leave education because you are such a valuable source to the people, to the community. My son loves your class. My son loves playing on your basketball team. Like, we don't want you to quit you know, you can make it work. So my dad came home and told my mom like, Hey, this guy really thinks I should stay in teaching. You know, he thinks it'll be a good value add for him and the community. And my mom said, well, I don't really care what that guy says. Like we still need to make more money. So my dad went back and said to the guy, look, I really need a job. I need to make more than what I'm making. And the guy said, all right, Jim, I'm going to give you um, a job in coding, which was basically math back then. And the guy said, how much do you want to make Jim? And my dad took a deep breath and he said, $18,000 a year. And the guy looked at him and smiled and he said, okay, Jim, we're going to start you off with like $26,000 a year. And so he almost doubled my dad's salary within a few moments of conversation. And, you know, the generosity of that businessman to give him a job with no background and to, to pay him more than he was making significantly at the time, which was a big deal. So anyway, my dad was an English teacher, but he had to move over to the tech and pharmaceutical and business world because he had to support seven of us. So, mm, yeah. Yeah. And as far as how it influenced you, I know that when you were growing up, you wanted to be an English teacher and, and you loved playing basketball and, and you wanted to be a basketball coach. And I, I'd be curious to hear is that that was basically what you thought you were going to do your whole life, right? Like you were, you were set to be, I'm going to college so that I can become an English teacher. And then I'll be like, maybe even the, the basketball coach of the high school or whatever mm-hmm. school you're at. What were some twists and turns along the way. Like, like, I would love to hear what, what your professional career looked like in the beginning. And then when you realized that wasn't what you actually wanted to be doing anymore. Well, it's, it's really an interesting conversation because these days, you know, like, especially in our world, people change careers and jobs all the time. It's just normal. But growing up in high school and college, I never thought about anything other than being an English teacher. It was the only class I got a B or an A in. I mean, I was generally like an average student, like B's, maybe C plus, I would get an A in gym class and an A in literature class, but that was about it. I felt like people, movement, and stories resonated with me, but everything else was like in one ear out the other. So that's all I thought about. And that was a really valuable, respectful path to take, you know, just be a teacher, of course. Why not? I had parents and family members as teachers. So so I started out doing that. I was a high school literature teacher and a basketball coach at a school in New Jersey for about two years. And then there was like a budget cut, a huge budget cut. Chris Christie cut many millions from the budget in 2008. And so I lost my job. And I remember feeling really jaded being like, oh shit, (laughs) I'm like 24. I've just had a job for two years. I lost it because of financial reasons. So I knew I had to take a leap and I stayed in education, but I took a job in Hong Kong. I decided to travel abroad. I had played college basketball, so I never got a chance to see the world. I never got a chance to like travel. I was in a gym, you know, five, six hours a day. So I traveled abroad. I moved to Hong Kong for two years and I was teaching at an international school. I was teaching ESL and literature to the high school students. So that was really, really great experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
to, I would love to get into this more in depth with you. And I would also yeah. love to hear one of the, you, you mentioned that you had some challenges, maybe some pain points that drew your attention to nutrition in the first place. What was maybe one of those challenges that, that brought your attention to nutrition? I mean, you know, I grew up like as an athlete, right? So I was just like this spindly fast, like calorie guzzling, um, sugar guzzling, young person. And I was kind of like a little machine. I played basketball in college. Like I just could do whatever I wanted. I thought, and I was eating a lot of junk, you know, like candy, just sandwiches, pastas, typical American diet really. And it served me. Okay. Right. I didn't have any issues per se, but then I got into a car accident when I was 22. I got hit by a car. I was riding my bicycle down a hill got slammed, had a massive concussion. I was unconscious for many hours and just the next day, a couple of days later, I woke up with pretty bad clinical depression and I never had that before. And I was going through some personal stuff, but that wasn't getting me to the state of depression. I was just anxious and sad and weepy. But then that, that concussion and the neuroinflammation that ensued from that, I think really did a number on me for sure. And so I spent about a year when I was 22, still teaching, not into nutrition yet, just meditating. Uh, I started to read books on Buddhism and I started to think like, there's so much pain and suffering happening inside of me that I don't want to add to that. So I stopped eating animals. I started, I dated someone at the time and she was really into fitness and nutrition. So she helped me embrace a macrobiotic diet and, you know, eat less junk. So the first year was just me trying to get off of an antidepressant, me trying to eat better. I didn't trust the medical system in the sense that all they wanted to do was give me a prescription with endless refills. And I wasn't about that life. I think that life could be really important for some people in conjunction with other mediators and other things to help. That's can be life-saving for many people. And I support that fully, but I just think that the medical system never asked me a question about what I ate. They never asked me how I slept. They didn't ask me about, you know, energetic and spiritual insights. They just heard a couple lines and a consult and said, you know, this is going to be what what you're taking for many, many years. So I, I did it to kind of save my life. I wasn't trying to start a company and Instagram account. I was like, no, I, I got to take care of myself because I don't believe what's happening around me. So that's really what started it um, was mental health basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how long it took, but I'm sure, you know, within a couple of years, you really started to see the efficacy of, of eating really well and, and meditating and taking care of your body. And I know that you and I both did the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Did you sign up for the Institute for Integrative Nutrition to become a health coach very shortly after you started to pay more attention to what you were eating? And yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about that part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I started the whole, the, the car accident happened right before I began teaching. So months after I graduated college. So that little period of transition was also difficult. Right. And then hit by the car, depression, concussion. And then I was starting this job as a teacher, which was really exciting, but also like, you know, a little overwhelming. I started to just clean things up on my own, read a couple of books. Again, the person I was dating was helping with that. But then I enrolled at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition when I was actually in Hong Kong. So this was just year three of adulthood for me. I enrolled in IIN and I was in Hong Kong and I did it because I was bored I, I, and lonely. Like I would come back from teaching English and I didn't know a lot of people yet in Hong Kong and come back to my apartment. And I was like, I want to learn something. I want to like build, build on top of what I'm doing during my day job. And I want to like learn how to eat better for myself. And I thought 
if I could maybe work with a few clients and pay, pay my tuition back while I'm in school and help some friends out, I would do that. But I didn't have any intentions of leaving education. I mean, it was a steady job. You had a pension. I, it gave me a chance to travel around the world. So to me, I wasn't trying to leave education in the beginning. But about a year and a half into being in Hong Kong, I realized that I was in the wrong field, that I would always be a teacher and I would always be a coach. But my content had to shift. I had to shift what I was teaching because I had to kind of evolve with what, what was most important to me. So yeah, I, I just, uh, it, it started to happen around like the first year abroad, I started to dabble and to study, you know, nutrition and became sort of a, a food. I don't know what the word is. I was going to say food junkie, but that doesn't sound right. I was into it. And uh, anyway, so that, that's what, that's where I began my journey. So that's, that's plenty of background and I appreciate you sharing all of it. I would love to get into the, maybe the first big leg of your, your shift in your career was around functional medicine. And I would love for you to just lay out a foundation of what is functional medicine. And then, uh, yeah, from, uh, I'll be able to work around from there, maybe things that you uh, worked on with clients and misconceptions that most people have about uh, nutrition as, as far as with working with doctors versus a functional medicine practitioner. But Let's just start with what is functional medicine? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't think anyone should like take my word as like gold. I think that I can give an interpretation of what we think functional medicine is these days. I'm not a doctor, but I worked in a effectively a functional medicine practice for about five years. But uh, so functional medicine is um, medicine that is basically rooted towards a root cause resolution approach, which means that doctors are not treating symptoms or if they are, they're also treating the root cause. They're trying to dig a little deeper they're asking questions about antecedents and triggers and mediators. They're trying to figure out, you know, the, the journey of the roadmap of the disease pathology. They're trying to figure out where did it begin and how, and how can we most sustainably and effectively treat it, you know? So I guess what that looks like is that medications are used for sure in functional medicine. They're just not necessarily always the first line of defense. They might be the fourth or fifth line of defense. So someone might come in with high insulin or high blood sugar and a functional medicine doctor will first just address diet and ask them to cut out refined carbs and sodas and as much, you know, extra glucose as possible and help them eat more protein and fat and might give them some supplements like berberine, different kinds of supplements to help regulate their metabolic function. They'll run labs. They'll still do a lot of diagnostics. They'll look at thyroid. They'll look at like liver enzyme function. They'll look at all the things but they're just going to do a very comprehensive approach to figure out what's causing this metabolic failure. So that's kind of how it looks. And that's, that's what I would say it is. Mm -hmm. And so let's just take a, a specific, you know, a random person, for example, they're coming in. We'll, we'll look at it from your lens. You were, were you a health coach still when you were at Parsley Health? Yeah, I joined, I was a health coach back, yeah, 2016, I joined as a health coach. There was only like four or five of us as coaches. And our job was to work alongside doctors and to take their medical plan and to make it as lifestyle rich as possible, meaning like dietary improvements and upgrades and sleep modifications and sleep hygiene and stress management. And, and really also mindset too, you know, like people would come in and we had to really support them in shifting their whole their whole kitchen, their whole lifestyle. I mean, their whole mindset, you know, when friends asked them to go out to dinner at an Italian restaurant, we had to help teach them what questions to ask and how to read the menu. So very practical. Like we were very like, like we take this high level medical plan and let's make it as practical and as applicable as possible to their life. And, 
And that was really the, the challenge. And it's, it was a lot harder than it might sound because behavior change is never easy. <laughs> but I do find that when people are motivated and they have the right support and resources, they will make change slowly and surely. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, one of, one of the flaws, at, at least perceived flaws of the medical system from my view is that a doctor will give a, a very prescriptive, you know, these are eat this, don't eat this. And there, there's really no handholding. It's just here are the things that you need to do go out into the world, you'll figure it out. You're, you're a grown up, you can do this on your own. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the things that I appreciate about the functional medicine approach is that we understand that humans are way more complicated than just needing to know exactly what information to follow. So I don't know, you don't need to bring in a specific person, but is there a, a template of, you know, some a client that is that was typical for you that was told what to do. And then, you know, as soon as they left the the doctor's office, so to speak, it was like, how do I implement all this stuff? And what were some ways that you helped that person actually implement the changes? Well, I I spent many years in the beginning, just working with anybody and everybody, because I just need to understand how to work with people, how to coach, how to change behavior, how to support people. And that was really invaluable. And I found that I just saw patterns. I saw a lot of patterns and the patterns were really around what I came to understand is just blood sugar dysregulation, you know, highs and lows throughout the day of energy. Um, People who get really tired after lunch, midday, they just like need to take a nap, need to fall asleep. I began to see that through not just my own observations, but studying from people like Andre Nakayama and Dr. Karazi and that that was metabolic dysregulation. I started to see that people were waking up in the middle of the night to pee, which is a sign of blood sugar dysregulation. I started to see that people were craving sweets all day or needed to end every meal with something sweet, which I I found to be really interesting, good data. I started to see that people were hungry within a half an hour after eating. So I was curious about ghrelin and leptin. And I was curious about what was on their plate and were they eating slow? Were they eating fast? Were they eating in front of the TV or were they eating just you know, by themselves with no other stimulation. So I just started to see some low hanging fruit, what I thought is low hanging fruit, because I knew how complex it could get. And I wasn't a dietitian. I wasn't going to read blood, blood work and blood labs. And I wasn't really trained to do that. And I didn't really think I needed to do that, especially when I was working on my own. I just needed to help people move the needle forward so that they could feel like 10% better every week, which 10% is a lot. So (laughs) I thought, can we, can we just cut out sugar, you know, like really, and then for the things you want to keep in, let's say you're committed to having muffins every week because you're just committed to that. Can we upgrade those muffins? Like maybe you're committed to having ice cream because it's important to your childhood or your children. Um, So let's upgrade that. So I just found patterns and and metabolic dysregulation. Let's just say that and and anti-inflammatory eating. And I was like, I can do that. So I spent about seven or eight years really focused on those two buckets, just you know, helping with regulation of metabolic function and cleaning up inflammatory foods, which I would just say, like, largely is most of the work for people from a dietary perspective. And then it it does most of the, it has most of the high ROI for people, you know, people feel significantly better when they just do those two things. And I know that's, and, and just to do those two things requires hundreds of steps. So I knew that I had to like architect and like hold people's hand through that So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling here, but those are the two camps I lived in. And that's what really helped me make big, big, big shifts for people and help them make big shifts for themselves. Awesome. Have you ever experimented with fasting? And this is something that I haven't really explored in in quite some time, especially on my podcast, but 
is there are there markers that you would look for for when someone when it's like safe for someone to be fasting versus when it's not or like who's an ideal candidate for it versus it, it doesn't seem like you do fasting I fast at night when I sleep. I mean, I'm not really interested in doing much more than that. I, I will fast when I travel, like when I'm on a plane, I try not to eat because I want to just improve jet lag and inflammation as best I can. I, so yeah, I think I might fast between 12 and 14 hours a day, which is basically like my last meals at 7.30 and I wake up and I have breakfast at nine. And I mean, that's kind of like my fasting window. I think that's a really simple way for us to approach it. And, and I'm honestly not an expert on fasting. I think there's a lot of interesting science and data and I'm not necessarily updated on it. I would say women need to be very careful about fasting just because of blood sugar. And also I would say dysregulation. There have been times in my life, Michael, where like I was too stressed, too sad, too depressed to be fasting. The moment I fasted or I went too long between meals, I became hypoglycemic and I became more weepy and more upset. So like, we got to kind of, we got to watch it. And, and also I think the only reasons I ever do fasting intentionally, if I do like a 16 hour fast is maybe if I'm feeling really like I'm in a good place and I can. And then also if I'm trying to address, like, I don't know, I've had all kinds of like stomach issues over the years too, right? Like, you know, SIBO and bloating and stuff. So I'm, I generally might fast to just kind of help give my digestive system a break to help with sort of uh, cleaning up that ecosystem by not dumping food into it. So that's, those are some of the reasons I would actually think about fasting. And for like brain fog, if I have severe brain fog, I will fast. I will I will be more mindful about my four hour gap between meals and I won't snack as much, but you know, it, there's a whole conversation there. I, I don't, I don't think about it too much anymore. I do whatever my body needs to do. Um, and these days it's generally just fasting at night. Awesome. Well, from here, I'd love to segue into what you're up to these days. I, I know that you're a conscious leadership coach and I would love to know what, what contributed to you making the shift out of health coaching or nutrition coaching into doing leadership coaching, maybe a couple of turning points. And then how would you describe what conscious leadership coaching is? Yeah, this is a really interesting chapter of life. I, I tend to think that like, and this probably goes true for you or for everybody here is I think that we, we shift our focus. I find many people, myself included, shift focus on what we're doing in life to really address like our own curiosity and needs. So for those years of that decade, I was really thinking about food and I was really meditating more and I was going to culinary school and I was learning how to make food and teach people that that was what I needed to do for myself. And when I was working at Parsley, it was a, we were a small company at first, 10, 12 people. Then we became 40 and 50 and hundred and 200 people. And as we grew, which was really cool, it was like being on a rocket ship, uh, really cool, really stressful, but really cool. I started to just realize that there was just so much I didn't know I was signing up for, like just corporate stress, culture, dysfunction, people, like people not knowing how to be people together, people not knowing how to like disagree and commit, people not knowing how to disagree and be agreeable, you know, like stuff like that. And I was like, wow, like, you know, we have so much pedigree and experience and really good hearts and souls around us, but we actually don't know how to work together sometimes. Mm. I mean, th th there were some really great moments, obviously to be successful, like, like that company is, you need to know how to do really good things. So by and large, really exceptional experience and company, but there was just a lot of opportunities and gaps for people learning new skills on how to get present, on how to communicate, on how to listen actively, on how to advocate for their needs, on how to take responsibility, on how to be curious instead of closed. And I started to realize that like, 
you know, again, I had left the clinical side, I had moved over to the business side, and I realized that there was just a lot of gaps there, and there were gaps that I needed to fill. So I started to study from the Conscious Leadership Group. I actually just went out to California in like 2019 to study with, it was like a four-day conference with Jim and Diana. I got to know them. I started reading the book, and I was like, wow, this is like my jam. And I loved the way that they were thinking, and I, I, I you know, I've evolved and iterated my style since then, but that was really a pivotal moment for me. So I came back to Parsley because it was a leadership retreat I went on and I came back to Parsley and I started implementing a lot of the leadership principles into the company. And at first it was just like a book club, come study, let's learn once a week, let's jam, let's talk. And then people wanted more and needed more. And throughout the company, other departments started to understand that there was an offering on people development and leadership development. And that wasn't my job per se, like I wasn't the leadership coach, but it became something that people needed to learn. So I showed up and I did my best teaching really complex, you know, things like consciousness and how to be present. I mean, these things seem really simple because we're humans, but like really, really complicated for people in a corporate setting. So I, I feel like that was sort of my turning point was I, I moved away from nutrition because I, I had kind of exhausted my capacity to get into the weeds of food. You know, I just felt like I taught what I needed to teach. I helped thousands of people. I was really proud of that, but I needed to master a new subject area. And this subject area more was interpersonal. It was communication. It was how we think, how we solve problems. So that's kind of what happened. That was about three and a half years ago. I probably made that shift and I've been on that ride ever since. Mm-hmm. So I know in, in doing a little bit of the homework on you, there was, there's, there seemed to be a lot of turning points that you've had in your life. But one of them, uh, I noticed that you had a three month intentional break off that you just, you weren't working at all. I would love to hear what was, was that something that was just, you needed to slam the brakes and it wasn't a good time to continue working or was that intentional kind of soul searching time off. I, I would just love to hear about what happened during yeah. the three months. I mean, there was just a sabbatical, right? Like I had, you know, if we zoom out, like I joined Parsley Health in 2016, I was like probably employee 12 or 15. And then by the time I left, we were almost 300 employees. So that that's called being on a rocket ship. You know, we, we raised many, many, many millions of dollars in revenue. I mean, or capital, I, I didn't raise them per se, but I built the systems so that we could raise them. And experience a lot of growth, a lot of transition. You know, when you're at a startup like that, this is my cat. When you're at a startup like that, you play so many roles, you play so many hats and it's so good for growth, but also like it's exhausting. And I did find my sweet spot. I found that like people development and coaching was still going to be where I lived. And I just had to figure out if I gave myself a few months off, like how can I reposition and reenter the business world? Um, So I started my podcast also during that time. I went to Hawaii for a couple of weeks with friends. I just got away from my computer, you know, and I, I was really burnt out when I left Parsley. And that's not um, a knock on Parsley per se. I think most people, if you're listening, you're burnt out in some way. We're all burnt out <laughs> from surviving a global pandemic to our normal everyday trials and tribulations. So that's what I did with that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now you you gave a little bit of background about what conscious leadership coaching is. And I would love to hear, like, I want to dive into this with you. What is maybe some of the commitments of uh, conscious leadership? And what were some of the key learnings that you've had from the book? And how are you using that to show up for your clients? And uh, in terms of how you develop or help people develop 
what are what are some of the I guess the high level things that you would point people to right away? Well, I think it's a really, really great book. I think it's a great methodology. It's not everything in all things. They, the authors would tell you that too. It's a way to think about how to be in the world. And it's a, if you break it down, you get really simple opportunities to you know, get present. Every moment we have a chance to get present. Most of our life is in reactivity. Most of our life is in fear and uh, sort of a toxic state. That's part of our evolutionary response to be in this world is to look out for our safety. And that's not bad. It's just how we're programmed. It's our limbic system. And I think that um, the, the conscious leadership methodology was helpful and fun because it gave a little bit of science. It made it very human. You know, you never felt bad about being below the line. If you, if you understand it, really, you don't feel bad about being low, below the line. You have to love and accept yourself for being there. I mean, recognizing your patterning and knowing when and how and who triggers you to feel below the line is really empowering. So, you know, effectively, if I just get to your question, which is what, how do I work with people? I, I generally work with leaders who care about their own, their own development and their own sense of integrity and how they show up in the world. And people generally come to me when they feel this sort of like stuck energy, this, this repeated drama pattern, these things keep happening. These things keep happening. I keep feeling like a victim. I keep feeling powerless. I keep feeling um, disengaged or apathetic. And when people feel that, they know they need some sort of coaching. And, you know, there's thousands of methodologies and people that can help. But the people who I help are generally people who feel those things. And what I'm trying to do with people in the beginning is, is to help humanize their experience. That, like, whatever they're experiencing could be protective. It's normal. It's not a knock on you if you're feeling these things. And then also, it's getting people at, to understand presencing techniques. This cat is really... Just, I have a cat on my shoulder. You guys can't see me if you're listening to the audio, but it's happening. Thank you, Michael, for your patience. <laughs> this is a good presencing technique is to have a cat on your shoulder. So let's get to it. I help people get really present, understand ways to breathe, to move, to take breaks throughout their day so that they could simply manage their energy, which sounds like not very executive and high level, but let me tell you, it's a really big deal because you can't make conscious actions. You can't listen actively. You can't get curious when you're, in reactive mode when you're not present. So that's one of the first things they do a conscious leadership group is like, let's breathe, let's get present, or let's play, let's dance, let's get present. And then I'm asking people ultimately to move from a place of fear to identify fear patterns and ask themselves if they're willing to move towards love, to move from being closed and committed to being right, to being curious and being open, to move from being really serious and really like, this is a big deal, this is terrible, this is really serious, to just being open and playful. And every, a lot happens between these three shifts, but so many things happen between these three shifts. But I find that if I were to break that down, I am helping people move from these very closed, fearful based states to finding ways to, to build skills, to get them to be more open, to be more curious, to be more playful. I find that to be the work of coaching <laughs> and the work of skill development. People need to learn skills to get to these states. They're not flawed. They're not broken. They're not bad leaders if they're reactive. They're not bad leaders if they're you know, they're just, they're, they're scared and they need to know how they're being scared and um, how, how to work with that, that space. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are listening, who are not familiar with the 15 commitments of conscious leadership and with, she said, uh, Elisa said, Jim and Diana, it's, it's a book by Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman. Mm -hmm. And below the line is, you know, they, they say, they'll say this, they'll be the first to admit they are just making up their own rules, but 
one of the frames that they have in the book is above the line is when we're open, curious, available and present. And below the line is when we're closed off, defensive, reactive. Mm -hmm. And they're not distinctions that one is better than the other. I think it's easy to listen to this. And I, I raised my hand very high. It's like the first time I read this, I made the game about let's be above the line as much as possible. Yeah. And the game is really, can I just be with whatever is actually true for me right now, right? Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear how, like if a client's coming to you and, and they're committed to being right and they're saying, you know, like they, the, my sales team really isn't, they're not, they're not making calls, they're not hitting their quota, whatever it is, they're, they're caught in some sort of story, in some sort of drama. Uh, where do you help them bring the presence that and be okay with being below the line? It's a part of your humanity. And what are maybe some ways that you help them work through that and, and make shift moves and all the wonderful things that, that you do as a coach? Well, the yeah, great overview, by the way, of below and above, it's a, it deserves this whole podcast really is below and above the line and the framework. I, I, I think initially uh, it's just getting people to be present and willing to be present when you can get people to be present, you know, and just learn how to breathe through something and identify the state that they're in, um, that helps move a lot of energy through. I'm not gonna ask people to shift unless they're present and unless they're willing to take responsibility, unless they're willing to stop gossip and blame, unless they're willing to feel their feelings. So there's no shifting happening, you know? There's no, oh, like, let's get this executive who's worried about the data and the team to show up the next meeting and be open and curious. Like, that's going to be sniffed out as bullshit or not authentic. If in fact they haven't understood their role in it, if they haven't understood how their reactivity is contributing to it, how their closed mindedness and lack of curiosity is contributing to that drama that they're bringing. So it's a lot of getting present. It's a lot of examining their role in that drama. One of the things I like to do after safety and establishing rapport and getting people present is I like to have people, and this is an activity from the conscious leadership group, is I like to have them, you know, I was like, oh, this is a really big problem you have. This is a serious problem. This is a big deal. This is like the worst thing in the world. And they're like, yeah, it's really bad. I'm like, yeah, well, let's teach the world how to get your problem. You know, like you got a problem, teach everyone how to get it. And so what they have to do, and this is part of an exercise in this conscious leadership group, is just saying like, you know, what's my role in this? You know, what do you, what do you have to do to keep this problem going? What do you have to not acknowledge to keep this problem going? What do you have to not feel to keep this problem going? What do you have to, who do you have to blame? You know? And so once you start to like get people putting pen to paper, getting a little bit creative and playful with this big drama, that's really serious. They start to loosen their grip a little bit, hopefully. And they start to more importantly, embrace responsibility commitment number one, which is taking radical responsibility. Like they start to see their role in the drama. I think that's the most empowering thing any of us can ever do after we get present is fucking examine our role in our drama. Like we all have drama. Like I have drama, you know? And if, if I can be really, really honest and compassionate with myself, I can see how I'm contributing to perpetuating and benefiting from the drama in my life. And when I get to see that, I then get to ask myself, am I willing to shift it? Like, am I willing to let this go? Am I willing to operate a different way? And sometimes I'm not willing. Sometimes I'm just committed. I'm committed to being, you know, the victim younger sister. I'm committed to being the, the daughter who doesn't get enough love, whatever the thing is. Uh -huh. But sometimes I'm willing to shift. And then that, that is really big. But the, the breaking of the patterns happens when you recognize the pattern. 
And I think that's a really powerful thing to help people do is just recognize the pattern and the role that they play in that pattern. Hmm. There's so much in here. The drama has come up a few times. I know one of the cornerstones of uh, 15 Commitments is the drama triangle. Yeah. What, what are the three parts of the drama triangle? And I would love to hear which one's most prevalent for you. Like, what, Do you have one that you default to when you're in drama? Yeah, good question. So below the line, they say, and this is probably, again, what Diana and Jim and the co-authors have done is take 25 years of various methodologies and combine them into one framework that they feel is most digestible for people to get consciousness. <laughs> um, and they've done a really good job. And when you're below the line, when you're in a state of fear and reactivity and toxicity, you might take one of three different personas or three different characters. And so there's a victim, a villain, and a hero. A victim feels at the effect of, they feel that the world is happening to them and that they are often powerless. They're often drifting. They're often procrastinating. They're waiting for someone else to come in and save them. A villain might feel that the world is also sort of out to get them, but they feel more and they're more seated in the blame game. You know, they're blaming themselves. They're blaming other people. They're out there causing quite a bit of drama. They're gossiping quite a bit. And a hero is someone who looks really good on the outside. Heroes are people who you know, temporarily avoid the hard thing by solving it, by fixing things. They're the ones who generally get the promotion. They might be the ones who are lauded as like, you know, the person, the savior who walks in and like helps all the bad feelings go away, helps everything, you know, get better. But heroes are generally avoiding conflict. They're generally avoiding the elephant in the room. And most importantly, the emotion in the room. All three characters actually avoid the emotions. They don't actually embrace emotions. They're generally like using drama to bypass emotion, which is really interesting. I think I might, I probably most resonate if I'm honest with the victim. I feel if I were to watch my narratives, my imagination, my behaviors, I think probably I very quickly go into like, oh, why is this happening to me? You know, again, this is happening to me. So I have ways of working with that for myself, but I'm pretty, pretty aware that that might be a character that plays up more for me. So, and maybe hero, probably hero is a very close second. I'm, especially when it comes to health or people who I love trying to help them all generally, like I catch myself, but making more suggestions before just like honoring the fact that we're scared and we don't know what to do. You know, I'll go into fixing and solving mode, which, by the way, for people listening, this is this whole conversation just requires a lot of nuance, a lot of reading of the book, a lot of breaking this down. It doesn't mean that if you solve something or if you propose a solution for something that you are bypassing and you're a hero. But if I'm doing it to avoid the emotion in the room, if I'm doing it to avoid the hard thing, if I'm just not acknowledging, if you come to me, Michael, and you say, like, Lisa, I'm having a really hard day. Like I can't focus. My, my head hurts. I have this raging headache. I'm like, Michael, just like, you know, just get over it. Take this Tylenol. Let's go. We have things to do. You know, like on some level, I am not acknowledging your pain. I'm not acknowledging like, Michael, that's really hard. Like, you know, is there anything else you need? And I'm not allowing, I'm not creating, I'm not helping you create a space to solve your own problem. You might have known what you needed, but I just jumped in and gave you Tylenol. You might have needed fresh air. You know, you might have needed like a walk in the park. But as the hero, I didn't, I felt too uncomfortable hearing your pain and discomfort. So I just went out and I um, proposed to solve for it. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Hmm. I'm torn between which direction to go because I, I've spoken a decent amount on this podcast already about feeling your feelings. But I think that this is something that can't be spoken about enough. It, I, it's just so conditioned at least in my world that feelings are 
especially when it comes to the boardroom and the office, there's something that are at best maybe meant to be left at home and at worst are something that interfere with productivity in the workplace. So oh. I would I would love to hear you talk about the importance of feeling your feelings to completion. What are the core feelings and uh, what are some ways that maybe it's typical ways that they show up in terms of uh, physiology in the body and, and ways that you can actually feel them to completion and what are they here to teach us? I know it's a lot, but. I don't know. I, I mean, I just think the whole narrative of like emotions aren't allowed in the workplace and you know, they're, they're interfering with productivity. It's just a, it's a very like, it's an old conversation and it's also just not valid. You know, every single business innovation, every single business success is driven by emotions, period full stop. It could be fear. It could be joy. It could be excitement. It could be some level of creativity or sexual feelings, but they are. And every single business decision, literally not just innovation is made by emotions or driven by emotions. It's just that we may not be aware of it. And I will also say that like in the corporate world, emotions have always been welcome. You know, HR, people, VPs, CEOs have always wanted joyful employees. They've always wanted happy employees. They've always wanted employees who have curiosity. So it's just that the good emotions have been welcomed. The bad emotions are now getting a little bit of a seat at the table and they're getting some context and some explanation. So for example, like anger and fear and anxiety, they now have a seat at the table because really progressive seasoned leaders who are human-centric, um, human-centered, are now starting to see that as data. I mean, if they have the right tools to interpret it, which we can get into. But yeah, you know, there's a really good book by uh, Liz and Molly, the authors Liz and Molly. They have these really great infographics you'll see on Instagram and LinkedIn. I It's somewhere in my apartment. But when I was at Parsley, I bought like almost everyone on the executive team a copy of that book because we were like, oh, we need to like, our people are upset. They're tired. They're burnt out. Um, they're not just complaining. They might have something really, might have really good data there for us to figure out. So yeah, they belong. They're, they're part of why we're here on this planet. They are why we're here on this planet. So, you know, I think that the most progressive, safe, successful leaders will use emotions as data, but not directives. So Susan David, who wrote the book, Emotional Agility says, emotions are data. They're not directives. So if you're listening and you're a CEO, you're a leader, you're a middle manager, you have your own team, you're a school teacher, you might be thinking like, I don't want to be people's therapist. We're not asking you to be people's therapist. But when you start to understand the pulse in the room, when you start to understand what you're feeling and where you're feeling and how to work with it, then you're just, you're more skilled and you're more confident to be able to sit amongst discomfort and really harness the creative power in the room to co-create a solve versus just like, you know, bypass it or, you know, have a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Could we unpack a, maybe a specific example? Like, let's just say that you're the CEO of a company and I am one of your employees and I'm noticing maybe a combination of fear and anger about a deadline that I have made up the story is completely unreasonable and is selfish and it's it's driven only by the profit of the CEO. And let's so how would you help let, let's just focus on me as the person that is feeling fear and uh, is feeling anger what would be the way that you would invite me to feel that to completion or like where would you even start with someone like that yeah well i think that the ceo based off what you're just sharing probably feels some level of fear 
maybe they're getting directives from the board or maybe they have some financial crunch that they need to, to meet, or maybe it's deeper than that. And there's some personal level of fulfillment they need to have from their job that month to make them feel capable and confident. Uh, who knows, maybe they're meeting their dad for lunch and they want to be able to give good data to please their dad. Maybe they're still in that mode, <laughs> like pleasing their parents, you know, like you'd be surprised. I, and then for the employee who's feeling that downward pressure of like, I have to, you know, do X, Y, Z to please the, the boss or the CEO. I mean, I would ask you like, you know, what are you, what sensations are you feeling? You know, you might say, oh, I'm feeling like shortness of breath and I'm feeling like my hands are sweaty and my stomach is tight and I don't have much of an appetite and my mind's just racing. You know, and so we'd say, okay, like that's fear and it's living somewhere in the chest and, and, and maybe like the head region. And then I would say like, you know, can you accept yourself for feeling, for feeling scared, for feeling fearful right now? Like, can you accept yourself for feeling that? And you might say like, it's really uncomfortable. I really don't want to feel it, but I can, I can accept that I'm here. Like I'm in this state. That's a big thing. Most people can't accept that they're in that state. They want to move on real quick. Um, and then there's a space of, you know, figuring out what are the questions to ask the fear. You know, fear is sort of a, it's a protective emotion and it's here to tell us that something needs to be known. Something needs to be sort of uncovered. And so you might ask, you might start asking questions like, you know, what is it I'm pretending not to know about this, this situation with my boss? What is it I need to, to ask and to ask for? Like, how can my needs be better met in this workplace situation? So I mean, maybe it's a question of like, is this job really for me? Is this situation really for me? You know, that's something that might need to be known to be exposed. So I think that you go into question mode, you start to say like, what are the questions that we can ask to just begin to help you understand the intelligence of this emotion that it's just here to guide you. It's here to nudge you in one way or the other. And then I would say like, you know, if someone feels ready to feel an emotion, to, to move it through their body, you know, they say that emotions and neuroscience physiologically only last 90 seconds that from the beginning of the trigger to the end of the emotion, if we're not getting caught into storytelling and like, you know, fueling the narrative with victim dialogue, an emotion, a surge in emotion might last at max 90 seconds. And that's from Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who wrote The Stroke of Insight in her research. So then, you know, I, I would say if, if the client or the person feels safe enough, like, you know, what would the emotion sound like? If you were to give it a sound, what would it sound like? If it were to have a movement, what would it move like? And, you know, that, that requires a lot of safety to create between a client and uh, a coach that they can be that way. I might even demonstrate what I mean by that and do activities to help them like move through that emotion. But those are really important ways to begin to like let the emotion be expressed to live. And actually, I know this sounds really like earthy crunchy here, but all of us already do this. We already do it. If you ever hear someone in the supermarket or in the post office line, because that's a stressful place, you know, people go like, Ugh! like, Ugh! so frustrated, you know, like we already give sounds and movements to our emotions. This isn't a new radical thing. I'm not asking you to be a somatic therapist here. Like we are really just, and animals do this and babies do this. You know, babies are very responsive. Animals are very responsive. They don't censor themselves, but somewhere along the line of growing up, we started to censor ourselves. We started to see that we needed to develop a flat affect. We needed to remain calm and poised and, you know, easy. So we fit in with the tribe. But part of learning how to own your voice and take radical responsibility of your life and of your body and of your emotions is really that realizing that these impulses, these sensations, these emotions are gifts. And when you begin to own them again by expressing them, you liberate yourself from this sort of like frozen state of disassociation. And then you get to move to a seat of presence. And then you get to move to a seat of, oh, now I want to create my own life. 
you know, I, I need to knock on that CEO's door and say, hey, we need to talk. I have some questions I'd love to jam with you on. Are you ready for that? But otherwise, if we're not going to feel those feelings, we're going to we're going to bite our lip. We're going to move away. We're going to gossip. We're going to not feel our feelings. We're going to get caught in drama. And I think, I don't know if I've answered your question. I feel like I've been riffing for some time, but I think that all of that plays a really big role to productivity. You know, CEOs, leaders out there, if you're listening, you want a productive team, <laughs> you want an efficient team. Well, drama is the most inefficient thing you have in your entire organization. And drama looks like gossip. It looks like procrastination. It looks like blame. It looks like putting things off entirely. It looks like not taking ownership if you miss a meeting. You know, it looks like not listening to your employees. So drama is not just like throwing things at the wall. Drama is woven into the fabric of most of our normal behaviors. And I just have to say that they're not normal. And we don't have to accept that as the status quo for how we operate with each other. Mm. Woo! You were, you were spitting lots of fire there, Lisa. There's there's so much good stuff in that in that riffing that you just had about feeling your feelings and the wisdom in our feelings and the way that they can unlock so much deep insight and deep wisdom and how we're doing ourselves an incredible disservice if we're not allowing ourselves to fully show up in, in any setting, really. That one of the things I love about this book is that it to me it kind of doubles as a relationship book it it can yeah. be a relationship yep. with a, any intimate relationship but starting with the self relationship with self with yep. of course is that's where taking radical responsibility is but then i have used a lot of the principles in my relationship with my wife too it, like what what relationship wouldn't benefit from following these commitments my one of my follow-ups to this is are there any commitments in the book that you don't think get enough attention or ones that you're you're most drawn to that we haven't already spoken about today so far well I think Jim and Diana and team have really created a good sequence you know I do think I was with a client the other day this client is the president of a big company and we were jumping around into chapter seven which is all about integrity and I, it hit me mid mid-sentence I was like this isn't about integrity you know like we haven't yet taken responsibility for X, Y, Z. And I didn't say it like that. We kind of like, I asked some questions and we got to that place of understanding that there still was a lack of responsibility. We were still stuck in blame. And so we did another activity where again, we wrote the screenplay for the movie of the biggest drama of your life. And so I, I think that responsibilities is it. It's the radical responsibility is the biggest one. I also think that within the chapter on integrity, this idea of what I love about chapter seven, I think it's chapter seven, is this idea that like energy management, which I did say in the beginning of the call, is really, really important for leaders to understand that when I work with executives and leaders, it's not just like, when I ask them like, what is your morning ritual? Like, it's not airy-fairy here. This is not like fluffy. This is the greatest CEOs, the greatest leaders on this planet, the greatest athletes on this planet have some level of intention about how they spend their morning and the breaks that they weave into their day on purpose, because our brain is a miracle and it's wildly complex, but it does need breaks in the day. It does need ways that we can move our energy through, whether it's food or movement or a walk or a handstand or fluttering your lips and moving around your apartment or singing. These are like effectively things we do already, but we're going to tell leaders, like, you have to manage your energy. Managing your energy is more important, Diane and Jim would say, than financial or time management, which I know is, deserves a full stop. People spend so much time managing money, running around, spending money here, trying to save money here. 
But if you manage your energy, manage your mind and body, get yourself present out of reactivity, that's far more efficient than time and money management, which is a really big mic drop moment for people listening here. And something I have to remind myself all the time too, you know, it's a practice, but within chapter seven, this idea of energy management is really dope. I think it's really progressive. And I also think it's just fundamental, fundamental. You can't skip that step period. And then the other thing I would say is that what I like about that is they have four quadrants of the four unfelts. You might have to help me out here, but I think there's the unkept, unkept promises to ourselves and to others. When we don't keep those promises, we are having a breach in integrity. And then we notice we withdraw, you know, we have drama, we gossip. We have these drama patterns that ensue because we haven't kept our promise with ourselves or others. Maybe I say, Michael, we're going to get coffee tomorrow, but then I don't text you. You know, like that's an unkept promise that might create some internal drama in my life some procrastination or a bad rapport with you if I don't follow through with that or keep that promise or renegotiate that promise. Then there's like the unfelts, right? So the things I'm not willing to feel, you know, maybe I'm still heartbroken over somebody and I'm just bypassing it and moving on to someone else new. Like, you know, that unfelt is a breach of my own integrity. And then there's the unsaids, which are the things I've not yet said. So the things I need to say that would help clear the air, you know, and that is really important. What I like about what Jim and Diana have done in the whole book is I really like that some things could be boiled down to some basic principles like revealing and withholding. I think it's in one of the chapters, you know, that when we reveal our, our, our thoughts, our emotions, our ideas, our feelings, we are in alignment. We are acting in integrity with what we're supposed to do here on this planet. And the revealing is hard. It requires skills. It requires communication skills, presencing skills. It requires a lot of skills to reveal what really needs to be revealed. But when we withdraw, that's when we start to breach our integrity, have big energy management gaps. And we start to just have a lot of drama in our life through the sort of like withdrawing and withholding. So, but there are four uncaps and I only gave you three. It's because I can't remember right now. My book isn't near me, but it's uh, unkept promises or uncaps. Um, unsaids, unfelts, and there's another one, but th- I think that's an interesting thing. I think, you know, each chapter can kind of stand alone, it can, but they all kind of blend together, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I'm open doing it justice. Jim and Diane, if you listen, I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on all these things too. If Jim and Diana are listening to this, I'd be really honored. And I'll, I'll say as someone, I, by no means am I an expert, but I've read the book three times. I've taken a course through the Conscious Leadership Group. You're doing a a wonderful job uh, explaining all of it and its level of import. And uh, I think that they would agree with me. So from here, I would love to know that as we move kind of towards the back end of the interview, I've listened to now in doing the research on you, I've listened to a few of your episodes of your podcast, The School of Unlearning. One random curiosity, did you purposely have it so it would acronym as SOUL? I didn't, but it just uh, did that. Yeah, yes. that was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, what have been maybe some of the biggest takeaways that you've had from having your podcast? Maybe some deep areas of insight or something that you that you've become aware of that you didn't think you would as a podcaster. Well, I think in running a podcast, right, it it requires I think a lot more than I thought it would require, which doesn't mean it's not worth it, but it's like. Like, you know, like there's a lot of production and thinking and research and development of ideas. And there's a lot of respect I have for people who do it either full time or at a grander scale. It's it's a lot. And it's also a really cool creative process. You know, I, I found myself and I'm sort of on this place of 
for my season three, which hasn't really come out yet, I, I want to change a little bit of the vibe and the tone and the length and play with that because I find that I'm doing a lot of long form. And I think that's really great for some people and conversations, but I want to find creative ways to, to get to juicy spots in maybe 20 minute sound bites or 30 minute sound bites. So that's kind of where I'm at with the production of it. But in terms of what I'm learning, I mean, I, I don't know. I think um, I'll talk a little bit about some of my guests and what they've shared that have really helped inspire me. Lindsay Murphy, one of my guests, she's an entrepreneur out of Portland. You know, she said, healing is just, I'm sorry, unlearning is just healing. You know, it's just healing. And it's just, it's coming back to making peace with and making amends with all the parts of your life you had to ignore or acquiesce or say yes to that you didn't really mean. And it's healing yourself. It's healing generational trauma. Like unlearning is healing generational trauma. But that was a really big mic, mic drop moment. Another author said that, you know, within, within the world of healing, Claude Silver, she's chief heart officer at VaynerMedia. She said, you know, it's, it's the greatest act of humility. You know, that you can reconsider a thought, that you can reconsider reconsider a belief or a construct, even just by a few degrees, that we can unlearn maybe what love should be or what financial success should be or what our career should be, that we can even consider questioning that is requires a lot of humility. So I think those were some really, there was a lot of sound bites there, but I also think um, one thing that stood out to me too is one, one author, uh, cookbook author, Laura Lee Bryant, she's written a few cookbooks. She was on my... Uh, my podcast and we went to culinary school together and she said you know unlearning is just like figuring out the playbooks that you've been given the playbooks on religion the playbooks on where to live what a good life is who you should marry and when those are playbooks we've been given via our parents our coaches the media books like we have been given a life like you think about this if you just pause you the moment you're born you're born into culture you're born into society which is like beautiful because you're held but so much is already predetermined. You know, you might you might be born and your child already has a favorite football team. They already have a religion given to them. They already have their style picked out for them. They already have maybe their their summer vacations already planned out for them. In the sense that, of course, a baby needs family and, and tradition. But but so much is predetermined. And part of unlearning is getting to this point in your life where you start to realize the playbooks. You realize what you've been given, what you've been spoon fed, what you have digested that you actually did not want. And you start to play them back. You start to write new playbooks. You start to shift by degrees how much you believe in what you were told as a kid. And I think that that's a really big part of adulting, of becoming, of growing up, is unlearning, you know, bit by bit and figuring out what's really true for you and, and being willing to continue to challenge that and evolve that too. I know this is one of the questions that you usually wrap up with towards the end of your interviews. What do you feel is most present for you with regard to unlearning? What, like, what are you unlearning right now? Or where, where are you focused on unlearning, if anything? It always changes for me as it should, right? I think the things that I'm thinking about unlearning are, you know, is something around success and failure, something around that, you know, that, and it's sort of like going back to my roots as an entrepreneur when I started my first nutrition company when I was 24 and was sitting on a couch and I was just, you know, studying and helping people. And I had a lot of bravado and I had no sense of fear because I was just like, let's do this. Let's change the world. And now at 38, you know, doing different work and working for myself and consulting and coaching, it has a different level of safety and a different level of orientation for how that shows up in my life. So I don't have as much of that bravado, thank goodness, 
but also I think I'm unlearning what, what to do with failure, you know, or perceived failure, you know, like clients that don't work out or contracts that don't get picked up or, you know, like starting and running your own business, like the, that there will be moments of failure baked into that. It's part of the creative process. And I have to constantly unlearn that for myself because it's a different time in my life. And there's a space of, I need, I'm unlearning um, this rigidity that all these things will go really well, that I have to leave space for downtime. I have to leave space for not knowing what's coming next. And that is a really big spiritual test for me as it is for anybody, right? And I think that's kind of where I am now is like, I'm learning what to do with moments of failure or stagnation or uncertainty and um, not to grasp and not to run. And, and that, that's kind of what I'm unlearning these days. Love it. Well, just a few more questions for you, Elisa. These are more rapid fire in nature. They do not need to be rapid fire answers, but just a couple of quick hitters from me. One, I, I believe you're also a fan of her work. I, I poached this from Brene Brown, but mm-hmm. I love the question. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Oh, geez. Just watching my cats blink. Like that cat's blink and they lick their lips. Like they do these very like sweet things that are like so cool and you get to capture them. I think that's really cute. And then like my cat right now is on my desk falling asleep, standing up. Like that's dope. You know, like (laughs) (laughs) I love, uh, I love anything with nature right now. Like it's raining here in Brooklyn and seeing the rain kind of drip down from the lights on my patio is a really beautiful thing that'll kind of catch me off guard for a few minutes and stare into space and watch that. I was at my parents the other day in New Jersey and I saw the wind move through the trees and just this, you could hear the sounds of the trees moving and you could hear, you could see them shifting back and forth in the blue sky. And I was like, wow, like this, what a time to be in that moment. And I, I love those moments. Those are the moments I, I look for them. I capture them. I, I share them because I believe, I believe in that. And Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets um, said that attention is the beginning of devotion. And, you know, I think what I'm devoted to in this life is to capturing moments of beauty and capturing what's good in the world and sharing it as much as I can. And it's not for Instagram. It's just because we all need reminders that, that that is there. It's all around us, you know? And I think part of being a conscious or integrative leader is stopping and being a part of that world, like this world, like, knowing your neighbors, like the trees are our neighbors, the birds are our neighbors, like our cats are living beings with us. I know this sounds super earthy crunchy here, but I don't care if you're a CEO or an executive, like mindfulness is a part of being on this, this planet and it always will be available to us. And so those are the things that stop me in my tracks. And I think that they are, they deserve a lot more um, joy and credit than maybe people give them. Mm, Yeah. Well, I, I had a strong feeling that the cats would be part of the answer. (laughs) <laughs> and and part and the other part of your answer reminds me one one of your episodes I, I forget it escapes me who the guest was or it might have been you as a guest you said something to the effect of most of us can name more corporations than we can vegetables and most of us can name more corporations than we can name animals and yeah. I was really struck by that 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 hit me that that was one of your mic drop moments that was something that I said oh my god you know like I'm someone who cares about being outside and tries to connect with nature but if I'm being really honest with myself I these days I could probably name more vegetables than corporations but I don't think I know as many animals as corporations and I think that it's a a beautiful invitation to reconnect with what really matters like we are a part of that world 
that's out there. We think mm -hmm. we, a lot of us think we're separate, but we're a big part of it. And I think it causes a lot of drama and suffering when we disconnect from that. So I, I love the, the invitation there. I want to know something about you that people would be surprised to learn. I really like tequila. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan of good tequila with, uh, I like to make like, you know, club soda, a little kombucha, because, you know, they have flavors, the kombucha, so you get to kind of flavor your tequila as you wish. Um, some lime. I really like good wine too. I don't drink that often because it just messes my body up, but I think the better the quality of the wine or liquor, I do much better. One of the things people might be surprised at, I don't know. Or is there like an activity that you partake in that doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't quote unquote congruent with the persona that most people see? Oh, geez. I, I don't know what people see and I don't know the persona they think of me, but, um, I think, I think what, what's interesting is like when people actually get to know me and like spend time with me is I'm a lot more, I think I'm a lot more playful and a lot more sweet than they might think. You know, I think like there might be a serious persona or like a business persona or like that, but like that there's a lot more play and childlike energy than people might realize, which I think is part of how I work through life. It's part of how I see the world, but it's also how I like kind of mitigate some of the heaviness of life, you know, like that's, that's part of how I cope, like whether it's a kitten video or a really good Pixar movie, you know, like that's what I want to be watching to kind of bring the lightness and, and, and light and light energy to the world. So, but actually favorite? now that I'm saying oh. that, I actually think people who know me probably know that <laughs> people who don't know me now know that Pixar has this really cute five minute short. I think it's called Piper. It's all those little sand birds that run across the ocean on like that run into the waves and then they run back and it's really cute. It's a little five minute video about them. I think it's adorable. So it's a good sort of like five minute video on like nature, but also like bravery and finding your own way. So awesome. You've mentioned, uh, you've mentioned books and you've actually mentioned mentors at, at various points during the interview, but I would love to hear if there's anything else that comes to mind in terms of books, resources that you'd point listeners to, and maybe a, a mentor of yours that you, that you learned the most from. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think when I think about how I think and what I, how I approach problem solving and people and dynamics and just everything like that, I do think of many people. I think my, my dad and my mom for sure influenced the way I see the world and how I work and how I think specifically probably my dad with just like this sense of humanity and compassion and nature and, and being very attuned to the energy in the room. I think that was from him a lot. And I think my mom, I think what I got from her was a sense of like grit and also humility. And then I think professionally, probably one of the people that's influenced me the most, probably because it was so early in my career, such a pivotal change was, was Andre Nakayama, who is the founder of Functional Nutrition Alliance, her and I have become good friends, but in the beginning, you know, I didn't know how to solve complex clinical cases or work with them. And the way that she taught me to think about root cause resolution, the way that she taught me to think about triggers and antecedents and mediators, and the way that we work with really complex things like cancer or diabetes, like that those can be broken down and sparsed out into really digestible parts of behavior change was really empowering for me. And it helped me, and it even helps me now when I'm working with teams and leaders, like big, big issues. Like I think like that still. And I think that's a really cool way to be able to connect dots and figure out what, what will we do that moves the needle and makes change happen. I still think that that's part of how she taught me how to think about complex issues. And I would give her that credit for sure. Mm -hmm. 
and any any books that you haven't already brought into the conversation that you would recommend so many books let's see i uh i think anything by you know atul gawande i think adam grant is great uh, i'm currently reading a book called pleasure activism the politics mm. of feeling good which is really important it's fantastic uh, yeah so I mean, I'm in the different space right now of pleasure activism, more sort of somatic in the body. I think that's really my next chapter of life. I'm figuring out how to weave that into human development and leadership, I think is important. What's interesting is conscious leadership group is very cognitive. It's very heady. And there's moments where play is involved and breath is involved and creative exercises are involved. And I think that's like a really good breaching of getting us out of our heads. And they do an excellent job of that. But I think there's probably a next level of understanding and teaching people more about the body and nervous system regulation and weaving that into development and leadership. I think that there's a way to bridge those gaps. And I think that's the space I'm in right now is what somatic or bodily practices, whether it be embracing more pleasure in your life, which sounds really weird to bring that into a leadership conversation, but like pleasure is not antithetical to productivity. It is a part of it. They complement each other. And if leaders understood that, then they would actually weave more of it into their life and they would create uh, more openly and they would connect more easily. So I, that's how I kind of think about these worlds combining and colliding. Mm. Well, Elisa, it's been a pretty full and rich conversation from my perspective. Is, is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you would like to bring into the conversation today or a wish for the audience or any kind of closing remarks before I ask my final couple of questions? No, I mean, I think we've covered so much and I appreciate the conversation and the ability to, to bounce from a couple of worlds to, to new worlds. So I appreciate, appreciate that. Awesome. Well, where would you invite listeners to connect with you? I'll, I'll link to all this in the show notes as well, but online or otherwise. Yeah. I mean, my Instagram account is great. And then my website, will put it there too. And I'm on LinkedIn, but mostly my website and Instagram is kind of where people can find me and uh, my podcast as well, The School on Learning. Awesome. Well, I'll link to all of that, of course. And uh, the final question I have, Elisa, the podcast is called Mike Search for Meaning. I love to know from my guests in, in your own words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? I think it means to be engaged with the world around you and to be willing and curious enough to create the meaning that you, that, that serves your soul. Mm-hmm. I think things are inherently meaningless. And we get the job of designing meaning. And I think that's a really empowering and cool thing that we get to do on this planet. So um, yeah, that's what I would say. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I, I think our work overlaps in so many ways and our journey has, of course, unfolded very uniquely, but we're up to similar stuff in the world. And I, I appreciate the way that you're showing up, especially in the limited time that I've gotten to know about your work. I've really been drawn to your podcast and I, I too am on my own journey of exploring my somatic awareness and, and building a uh, foundation of knowing like what's happening in my body and what where's the wisdom that has been untapped for most of my life so i am i'm proud to say that i'm on this on this journey with you and it's just been a a treat to have you on so thanks thanks for joining thank you michael and i'm very happy to be on this journey with you too and now that we know that we're both in new york uh, we will grab we will grab coffee one day soon yes we will And uh, to all the listeners, I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening whenever you're listening and take great care. Thank you.
Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.